Well, it's great to be here today. I, I hope you, uh, you enjoy as we look into the Word of God, Colossians chapter 2. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. I, I want to speak today to pastors, to pastors-to-be. I want to speak to particularly millennials. Uh, I want to give an example, if we can, of the way Paul thinks and talks about the local church. One of the things that's troubling me as we look across uh, the shape of our churches today is we're abandoning it as an institution. The church is not plan B for God. The church is plan A. There is no plan B. Just because the church is not doing the things that we think the church ought to do, it doesn't mean that we abandon and try to start something else. I think one of the things we see here with Paul as he's deal, dealing with this issue of the Colossian heresy and whatever else that might be with some intimate knowledge that's found outside of Christ is he doesn't abandon the local church. Actually, he speaks for the strict purpose of strengthening the local church. And so today, to that end, I want us to consider what the Scripture says as we look to the Scriptures that we would return to it not just simply for a sound faith, but also for a sound practice that would encourage the body of Christ. As you think about Colossians 2, I want to give you an example that demonstrates a little bit of my concern. Imagine that we're all standing in, in a staff meeting, and as we're sitting in staff meeting, this happens pretty regularly, and one of the staff members brings up a concern uh, from maybe a parent, and the parent comes in and, and says something along these lines is, you know, we were dealing with my son the other day, and we were talking to him about salvation, and in this picture of salvation, we were, we were kind of curious, how do we know that we know that, that our son might be a believer in Christ? And as the staff would sit around, we would discuss things from the Scripture. We would look particularly what, and ask the question, what does the Bible have to say about this issue of salvation. I mean, how can we know? Maybe we should look at uh, this confession. What kind of confession does this child have? Does he profess faith in the Lord Jesus? Does he understand uh, what it means to have his personal sin forgiven by Christ? Does he understand the depth of his sin? Do we see fruit of repentance? We, we would look at the scriptures to define what that looks like. But then maybe another staffer would ask this question, say, a parent brought this to my attention that, that maybe uh, I'm concerned about the size of our youth group. I'm concerned that the church down the street has a bigger youth group than we do. And as we proceed to answer that question, most often time what happens is the scriptures get laid aside. And we begin to ask questions about how other people are doing it. What are the experiences that you have? How do we actually grow? How can we get out there and get these people to come in and so on and so forth? We begin to put the scripture aside. Now, that just doesn't just happen in youth ministry. It's just the easiest target, I suppose. But when you begin to look at the ministries across our churches, many times when we look at practice and the way we experience things, we put the scripture aside and we stop looking for methods that we find in the word of God on how to grow people how to lead them in the ways of Christ. And so I want us to look at Colossians chapter 2, if you will. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We're just going to read to verse 5. We're going to be uh, expressing a lot of the first three chapters of Colossians today. First verse says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden 
all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before your word today. We ask God that your wisdom would reign. God, that we would uh, seek to know you, to know your ways, to understand your ways. God, not just as an intellectual pursuit, but that as we would see these words as great wisdom, beneficial for the here and now, and for the hope that we long for. And so God, today as we open your word, would you speak to our hearts? Our hearts long for you. We live in a dry and weary land. Father, we pray that your word would be that quenching thirst that we need today in Christ's name. Amen. The first thing that I want you to see in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, is I want you to see the, the shepherd's agony. The shepherd's agony. Paul is writing here as a shepherd to this church in Colossae. He's writing to dispel some of the things that have now crept in, some of the different appeals to knowledge some sort of insightful knowledge that's going on. I'm not sure that we know exactly what that is. There are a lot of theories out there as to what that might look like, but there are all different kinds of knowledge that are, that are appealing to these people in Colossae. And I want you to notice what the shepherd, what Paul does is he's trying to shepherd these people. He's reminding them, he's doubling down on the gospel. He's reminding them who they are to follow. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he reminds them of the preeminence of Christ. He doesn't come with some sort of fancy argument to dispel uh, the ways of the world. What he comes with is the basic gospel, this preeminence of Christ and who he is. I want you to notice that the shepherd's agony always reveals the shepherd's mission. If you look in Colossians 1.29, you'll see Right before the chapter, the second chapter begins, he says, For this purpose also I labor, talk, he's, this is Paul talking, I labor striving according to his power which mightily works within me. And so you ask the question, Paul, what are you, what are you striving for? Look back up in verse 28. He, and he says this, uh, well, maybe starting in 27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. I want you to see the means by which Paul is using. He's returning to uh, this focal point of the church. He's casting a vision in 28 and 20, or 27 and 28 of what the church should be, who the church should be, and how they should operate. And he's pinpointing their focus following from Colossians 1.15 all the way down here to Christ, that their aim has gotten off the mark of Christ. He gets into verse 28 and he says, we proclaim him. We proclaim him in every way, not just the preaching of the word, but in the way in which we live, we're proclaiming one thing. As we reflect the glory of God, we are created in the image of God. And as we're creating the image of God, as God restores us, we begin to look more like his son Christ in the world. And we proclaim him through that life that we live, through the words that we speak, the things that we do. He says, we proclaim him. How do we do this? He gives a vision for the church right here. We admonish everyone. How many people? You see, in the Colossian church, they were saying that there was only this type of uh, Gnostic insight for a selective few who had maybe a little bit more of an intellectual ability that could uh, see into and peer into this great salvation of Christ, maybe deeper than any others. He said, no, when we, when we do this work in the church, we admonish every person. There is no limit to that. There's no limit to what Christ can do for any single individual that exists in the church. The second thing he says is uh, 
teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present, and here's the key, here's the goal, and this is the goal that I'm concerned that we're losing consistently in our churches today. We have many aims, and this is among them. We have to get rid of all the other aims and this be the central focus. That our goal in the churches is that we make every man complete in Christ. We make every man mature. We, we make every man grown up in Christ, if you will. We allow every man now to reflect the glory of God in the world. That's right. One of the reasons we see stro- struggle and trouble in the churches is we have lots of baby Christians running around. And in raising six kids, we see chaos. If you want to see what chaos looks like, come visit my house sometime. It's true when you have kids who are growing up and oftentimes act in foolish ways, and then you add parents who sometimes act in foolish ways too, the chaos abounds. And when we see this in the churches with lots of children running around, lots of baby Christians running around, we see all kinds of chaos and struggle and trouble. And your natural instinct is going to, you're going to want to recede from the church. You're going to want to run from this institution that God has established. Don't run from the church. Just refocus your aim on what God says to focus on. Come back to this central focus of making people mature in Christ. He tells us how to do it by admonishing this word from the root, nuthateo, which means to admonish or to lay truth upon the mind of someone else. I mean, think about it like this. It's a word that borrows from the compound of metanoia, this idea that a person is walking one way, headstrong in one direction, and you lay the truth of God's word upon their mind. And what's the result of that? Often repentance. They turn around in their mind and they start walking in the direction of what God has called them to walk. And then teaching, that we would teach them consistently, teach them about Christ, not just for the purpose of intellectual gain. As Charles Spurgeon once said, we take one bit of scripture and we apply it to one bit of life. My mom used to say, Dale, just trust the Lord. And I used to ask, Mom, what do you mean? Just, what, what does that mean? How do you just, how do you just trust the Lord? I, I've come to understand what it means to trust the Lord is when he says something, just obey. You don't have to understand all the time. Just simply obey. What we're doing in the church is we're teaching people to observe all the things that Christ commanded. And we don't have to understand why all the time. We just know we're called to obey. So this was Paul's mission. He makes it the mission of the church. But why does he make this the mission of the church? He makes this the mission of the church because this is the mission of the head of the church. If you look at Colossians 1, he says, yet, he's talking about Christ, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. We have to regain the vision of our head. The vision of our head is Christ. The church follows Christ. And in following Christ, we must make it our aim, the same aim that he has, which is to take those who have been given to him. And in, in those who have been given to him, that we would make them complete, holy, and blameless in this present world. That we would make them mature in Christ. So we see that this is the goal of Christ. And Paul naturally, because it's the goal of the head of the church, he makes this the goal of the church. And as it's the goal of the church, he as the shepherd makes it his own personal goal. What's your goal today? Why do you want to lead a church? Why, why do you want to pastor? Why do you want to go out and shepherd people? What's the reason? There are a lot of reasons that people come up with as to why they want to shepherd and why they want to pastor. If this is not your aim, you're aiming in the wrong direction. 
Your goal is not to exalt and to glorify your Savior Christ. Your goal is to exalt yourself. Your goal is to exalt something else. Your goal is to uh, make people weak in the faith. You have to recenter your ideas and your mind, your practices, your doctrine, your teaching, everything upon this goal of making people complete in Christ. I would even go so far as to say in this particular passage, when you think of evangelism and discipleship, when he extends this aspect to every man, he's helping them to see that if your vision for wanting people to be complete in Christ is just within the church, it's probably too small. That we also have to think about those outside the church, that what, what is my goal for them? What's the only hope that they have? Is the degree to which they are born again and they mature in the faith in Christ. That this message that we proclaim is truly for every man. This is why Paul struggles. This is why he agonizes is the word. What do you agonize over, pastor? What keeps you up at night? What, what concerns you? What, what worries you? What, what weighs heavy on your mind? Is it that people aren't showing up on Sundays to hear you preach? Is it, is it that the offering is not quite what it, what it should be? Is it that some people think you're not intellectual enough to preach? I mean, what is it that keeps you up at night? All those things are frivolous. All those things are quite meaningless. What should keep us up at night is the spiritual disparity of our people. The spiritual indifference of our people, that our mission, our heart, our goal is to see that our people come to maturity, come to completeness in Christ. That's what ought to keep us up. Paul gives us a, a couple of particular ways on how we do that. He tells us we're to teach according to all the wisdom of God. That is certainly true. And in Colossians 2:11 and 3:5, he tells us the other way. We teach, yes, the things to teach our people how to walk in the Spirit, but he also says. To 11, putting off this body of flesh. If you're fighting a battle in the lives and hearts of your people that's other than helping them fight this battle with sin and death, then we're fighting the wrong battle. We're trying to teach them to assuage the biggest problem that they have in the wrong manner. He gives two ways teach wisdom, fight the flesh. Verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Those are the fronts in which we battle, Pastor. Those are the fronts in which we battle. The souls of people, the directions of people, that we would take those things which are born in them of earthly modes and we begin to crush them with the power of the Word of God. Now, it says to teach them. Look at verse 2. For the purpose that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is, Christ himself. Verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you think about this aspect of wisdom and knowledge. Shepherd, your practice reveals your source of wisdom. You say, well, how do you get that out of there? Well, what wisdom is basically is the application of the knowledge in which you have. What makes God all wise? He knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And so he acts appropriately in such a way to know what the best good is for every single one of us. He acts in wisdom. And we often act in great foolishness. I think sometimes we look at this passage and we open ourselves up to great liberty to say that we can borrow from any wisdom that there is out there. Paul's point here is not to say that when your wisdom is exhausted, now look at all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. 
Paul's point is don't even begin to look outward. Keep yourself from those delusions. Focus here on Christ and all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in him. When you think about children, my, my children last summer were uh, playing this new game, apparently, rocket launch. And so they were on the couch, and the boys, the stronger boys, would lean back, and they would let one of the younger kids, smaller kids, we didn't uh, condone this, by the way, this just happened. And so they're leaning back, and so they would put their feet up off the couch, and the other kid would sit in their feet, and so one, two, three, and off they would go. What makes a child foolish is they don't think about the results of what could happen. They make a decision for the thrill of the moment. They make a decision that is just thinking about the here and the now. And we have a lot of people who think foolishly. We have a lot of people who long for the immediate gratification that they can get. What it means to act wisely is we have an eschatological view of knowing that everything we do in the here and now has implication for that which is to come. I might would say it like this. Paul kind of says it like this in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. It's kind of this culmination of this whole teaching of reorienting the church back to the wisdom of God. Everything you, th- everything you say, everything you think, And everything you do makes a statement about God. One day we were walking around the seminary. I was a student here not too long ago, and we used to live in a small house across from uh, Dean. That was super exciting if you ever get a chance to do that. It was great. And we lived back here on Stanley Avenue, and so most nights we would come up and we would walk the seminary, and we'd walk around, and we only had four kids in, and so it was quite fun. We would walk around, and most of the time I'd throw the football with the boys, and Uh, I remember one night it was a full moon and we were throwing the football. I mean, you could see it was that bright at night. And as we were walking around the the seminary and we were throwing the football, my youngest boy said, uh, Will, he said, um, Dad, Dad, why is the moon, why is the moon following us? In that moment, what is Will thinking? His statement said a thousand words. His statement revealed a thousand beliefs that we were the center of the universe and everything was rotating around where we were. And so we, we pause for a minute and I get down on a knee and I say, Will, no, that's not how it works, bud. See, here's how it works is God actually created this particular aspect of our solar system and the sun is the center of our solar system here and the earth rotates around with the moon rotating around it And that there are millions of these types of galaxies that exist in the world, in the universe that we know. And the Bible tells us that God holds every single one of them in his his hand. You see, what I was doing is taking the wisdom of God and explaining it to Will and naturally what begins to happen. That child who once saw himself as so big in the world rotating around him, now how does he see himself? That we serve a God who is big and naturally we become less in the sight and next to this God. This is how you reorient people's lives around the wisdom and glory of God. We have to begin to return here. And you say, well, I'm not sure how to do that. Well, we're looking in the wrong places. Colossians 2, 3 tells us the location at which this wisdom exists. Is that this wisdom is found in a particular person. It's found in Christ. 
This is good news. Because in Colossians 3.3, he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. It's the same place if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. If you have been redeemed, this is the same location that you live and exist. I can only think of two reasons why it is that we don't expound upon this all the more, or we think it's hidden from us. He's not saying here this wisdom is hidden from you, believer. He's saying this wisdom is hidden, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, from the natural man because they cannot discern the things of the Spirit. They don't see reality properly. You see, when Will was thinking about the universe, he had bits and pieces that were true. The moon was big and it appeared as if it was following us. And he took the rest from his own wisdom and he began to fill in the gaps and smash it all together to make sense of life. That's what the natural man does. He observes particular things. He, he looks out in the natural world, but he's missing the key element of the puzzle to make it all make sense. And so everything that he, every conclusion that he comes to becomes useless. Why? Because it's not thinking of life in relation to Christ. But you, believer, you're hidden in Christ. Just look around the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of the great salvation that you yourself have. This is the means by which we live in life. This is the means by which we teach. This is how we teach. There are at least two reasons why I think this is why I think we don't rely upon the wisdom that we find in Christ. Number one, it could be that you don't find yourself in Christ. Maybe it is pastor or pastor-to-be that you're just seeking intellectual knowledge and, and wanting to corral people to follow you. And so you have to look in other directions and other places and other people, the experiences of other pastors to see exactly how they did it instead of just looking around at what Christ himself has done in you and for you. It could be that we as pastors walk around ourselves in the flesh. And when we walk around ourselves in the flesh, we're, look out, we're looking outside of the direction or the locale in which God has hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, the Bible says when we walk according to the flesh, our sin becomes hardened. It's the way in which we see the world through our hearts. It's, the, it's our, our eye into the world to understand it from a spiritual perspective. And so when we remain stained by the world, our vision is quite, it's quite clouded. And to ask for God to bless us with his particular wisdom it's truly for naught in situations like that. Why? Because if you're walking around with that clouded vision and God grants you something, you will not use it for his glory. You will use it for your glory. Let me give you an illustration from Ezekiel 14. This is the best place, I think, in Scripture to see this. In Ezekiel 14, the leaders of Israel came to Ezekiel and they're begging of Ezekiel, man of God, go and, go and beseech God on our behalf. And so he goes and inquires of the Lord, and the Lord says, there's a stumbling block before their face. I will not answer them according to their iniquity. Why? Because if God were to answer them and give him something good, the lens by which they see is clouded and dominated by fleshly thinking, and they would take all the goodness of God and use it for all their own pleasure and goodness. Pastor, one of the reasons that we don't see the wisdom of God is because we don't pursue holy lives. We pursue this idea of free grace. I'm not saying that grace is not free. Don't hear me say that. But when you have true faith, when you have believing, salvific faith, James declares, and Paul with him, 
that we act, we obey, we follow the commands of the Lord. This is essentially what it means to be a disciple. I want to make a few observations on this point when we think about how we practice, because I think it truly reveals our wisdom. And I think what we see in our churches, and this is what I'm deeply concerned about, often we see in our churches that we're practicing according to a contrary wisdom. The church's task uh, is to present the Christian faith clothed in modern terms, not to propagate modern thought clothed in Christian terms. But I think what we do often is we want to appear as being wise in the world and we want to appeal to the flesh of people to such a degree that we're willing to take their systems and use Christian lingo. The problem is those things are powerless to overcome the flesh of human beings. Don't expect to appeal to the flesh from your pulpit and have spiritual results. Don't expect in our programs that we appeal to the flesh of people and that you're going to have on the other side spiritually deep people. Our greatest enemy, as Paul reveals here, is not ignorance. It's sin. It's the flesh. It's that which we're at war with within. Oh, if ignorance were our only problem, it's much easier to expel than sin to destroy. You just sit a few people in a Sunday school class and you grind it out over time, give them some knowledge and everything will be good. But that's not what you're fighting. You're not fighting their lack of knowledge. That is certainly a problem, biblical literacy in our churches, no question. But there again, if you give fleshly people truth, they can't really see it. Their vision is clouded. Their mind is clouded. We have to work primarily on helping them to walk in completeness and fullness of Christ. And now they can see. Now they begin to truly have wisdom. Now they begin to apply what God says. Now they begin to truly understand. You can give people knowledge. That's well and good. But if their hearts are hardened by dark, and darkened by the cataracts of sin and suffering, then no amount of knowledge will bring them true understanding and growth. None. This is important for us. We think of Hebrews 3.13. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us the importance of fighting sin on a daily basis. This is what he says. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Why? That so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will deceive you into believing certain realities Realities that are not true. And just like Will thinking himself to be so big and us big along with him, we will be deceived into responding to realities that are untrue. We have to begin to reorient ourselves back to the wisdom of God. You believing, Pastor, walk by faith, walk in holiness, and you will discover in the place in which you are hidden, the treasures are there. The final point that I want to make before we close. The shepherd's warning protects the body from delusion. If you look at verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 4. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. And then Paul goes on to give a series of uh, exhortations as he talks about in, chapter, in verse 6. And then he goes on in verse 8 and says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. Our primary goal, it, we have to teach people to quarrel with their sin. 
and to love God. If we're not teaching people to quarrel with their sin and to love God, essentially what we're doing is we're teaching people to love their sin and to quarrel with God. We have to live in such a way as to study philosophy. Now, I'm not saying that we don't study philosophy. Your treasure of wisdom is not found there, is the point. Your treasure of wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ. Should we study philosophy? Absolutely we should study philosophy. Why? Because you're a watchman. We study to be a watchman, not to be a conspirator with the world. When we, when we look into wisdom from the world and we borrow from it, we're conspiring with the delusions of the enemy. We study these philosophies so that we can help our people as watchmen to warn them of that which is to come if you follow into these problems and trials. Here Paul is reminding us, see to it that no one takes you from these things. What are the ways in which we're deluded to the degree that our mind is not fixed upon Christ. He deals with that in Colossians 3, the first couple chapters, that fix your mind on things above, not on things on the world. This is what keeps us from delusions. What are a couple of, just in the final few moments, what are a few of those delusions that we see in our modern culture? I'm just going to choose three. going to run through these as quickly as I can. Three basic philosophies that I think over time have begun to delude our conservative theology. The first one I would say is pragmatism. Pragmatism is just simply choosing what works. Worth is determined by what we believe to be the desired practical outcome. Whatever we think pulls the most people in, that's what we're willing to do. Listen, uh, the end doesn't justify your means. The means to God is just as important as the end to him. He tells us in his word how we're to approach him. We're to follow that example. Paul demonstrates it here. This is really the old bait and switch of marketing, is it not? I find it interesting that uh, as we study church growth and how to do things like that, our primary textbooks have become marketing strategies. That's appealing to the flesh in order to gain spiritual promise. That's not going to happen based on the scriptures. You're appealing to the wrong wisdom. You're growing the wrong type of person. You're growing a fleshly person, not a spiritual person. Pragmatism eventually overshadows our theology. Theology has to take a back seat to methodology in pragmatism because now it's compromised. Why? Because we're looking to a different source for our authority. Think about it like the waves of the sea. Your theology is as the shore. And those waves of methodology, which are anti-biblical, come in. They're not producing what God says we ought to produce. And what happens over time, the erosion of the shore happens. And naturally, our theology takes a compromise. Why? Because we're looking to something else as being authoritative and superior and primary. Our theology is certainly important. But practice that's consistent with it is equally as important. When you think about the sufficiency of Scripture... The sufficiency of all that lies in the treasures and wisdom and knowledge that are found in Christ. The danger here is that we begin to look to experience ours and others to become our God rather than Scripture. That's happening. Be aware. Be a watchman. Look and see all around what's happening. You have to know the Word of God. The Word of Christ, as he says in 3.16, must dwell in you richly so that you can admonish and teach properly, so that you can warn in the right directions and in the right ways. The second one I want to talk about is consumerism. We are absolutely eaten up with consumerism. 
again, as we think about marketing books, I, I remember one time, and I, I can't recall if this was me going to buy the first Bible for my oldest son or if I was going to buy uh, Bibles for new believers in our church. And I walked into a bookstore, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not talking bad about the bookstore. It's really our fault. But I walked into the bookstore, and, and I go and stand, and there are like four different walls of Bibles. And not just walls of Bibles to the ceiling, but there are also tons and tons of aisles of Bibles. Bibles of all shapes and kinds. Bibles of different colors and two-tone this and leather that and blah, 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 blah. And all these rhinestones and different options. And you think about how consumeristic we are. And I stood there quite emotional as I'm looking over this and I'm thinking about the over 2,000 people groups who don't even have this word of God in their language. And yet we want preferences. We spend our money for preferences because we're, we've been taught to be consumers, that church is really all about us. Pay our tithe and we get this a la carte buffet type ministry at the church. That's not the way church is intended to be. We're consumers. We don't go to church to consume. We go to church to be consumed by Christ. We are called to be fully and completely submerged, saturated, delighting in everything that is Christ. And the final one is humanism. I only have time to go over one of these uh, aspects of humanism, but humanism is running rampantly throughout our churches. We've adopted it as a way of self-realization, replacing salvation. You think of self-esteem. You say, man, I'm supposed to think good about myself. Where in the scripture do you see that? Everywhere you look in the scripture, human wisdom does nothing but destroy. It is, according to the prince of the power of this air, it is the delusions of our mind to build the self at any place in scripture. Paul reminds us of this in Philippians chapter 3, verse, or chapter 3, verse 3. He says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Any philosophy that's proposing, parenting or otherwise, that we give esteem to people is not accomplishing full salvation. I'm warned here because I think we're okay with Christ relative to our justification. The problem is sanctification is being hijacked. And here's the deal. In Colossians 2, verse 6, Paul tells us this is exactly the same way you walk in Christ is the way you receive Christ, by faith in him. But what's happening is we preach Christ, Christ, Christ to be justified, and then we run off to all manner of philosophy to be sanctified. Salvation in total is found in one place. All self-help truly in the truest sense for eternal glory in God is found in Christ. You have to stand as a watchman or those things will creep in and delude your people and it will not accomplish the goal of making people complete in Christ. You see, what are you saying all this for? Here's why I'm saying this and this is my point about hijacking sanctification. Look at the final verse, final two verses of Colossians 2. He makes this whole point. He, Colossians 1 is talking about the preeminence of Christ. He comes to vision of the church, who we are found in Christ, what we should be accomplishing as shepherds. Paul has this burden for these people. He's trying to rein them back in into Christ. Now he tells them that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ, and he concludes, he revisits this aspect of salvation again in, in 13 and following in chapter 2, and then he concludes with this idea. 
the result if we don't do this. He says, in accordance, he, let me go to 21. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgences. Maybe it is the reason why we have baby Christians running around in our churches is we are appealing to fleshly indulgences as opposed to destroying them. Maybe it is that we're adopting philosophies that are found outside of Christ, and so even though they try and try and try, they can't overcome the fleshly indulgences that are waging war in their souls. We've been called with a mission. That mission is to be singly focused. Paul warns us of this, Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Galatians 5, 16. I say this, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. 1 Timothy 4, 8. For while the bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So if you were to look at this passage in reverse we could actually begin to diagnose what's wrong with a lot of our people. We see it's very evident. That's what's evident to us is that people are struggling to overcome the issues of the flesh that, they, that, that dominate their lives. Don't go looking for some other wisdom. Paul tells you this is the way in which you help them to overcome these fleshly indulgences. You teach them to grow in the spirit. You teach them to hunger and thirst after Christ. You demonstrate for them not just trust in God, but apply one bit of scripture to one bit of life, and they begin to see the spirit of the living God overcome and conquer the flesh that's within. One final thing. If you come to seminary and all you learn is theological terms and you're not learning Christ, you're going to be powerless. If you're learning ministry models and not learning Christ, you're going to be powerless. And the people you serve will be powerless too. If you're growing in your affection for a system, but not in your affection for Christ, you're going to be powerless. I think of one particular way in which in the scriptures, we see this maybe as a strongest declaration. Maybe we need a Mount Carmel experience. Maybe we need that moment where Elijah brings at the conclusion of his battle with the prophets of Baal. This is what he, let me remind you of what he says. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? The wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world is my appeal to you today. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, sell out. Follow him. But if Baal, if the wisdom of this world, follow them. Don't be on the fence. Choose to follow Christ. Set your mind on things above and help your people to set their minds there as well. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Father, we're grateful for our time together. I pray, Father, that you would take this word. God, that it would first grab a hold of all of us who have the spirit of the living God in us. And God, that we would trust the wisdom that you've provided, not just 
in our theological knowledge, but in the way in which we put that theological knowledge into practice. You have a means. You've told us how to obtain completeness in you. You've told us how to represent you, to be conformed to the image of your son so that we can honor you with everything that we think, everything that we say, and everything that we do. God, I pray that this would be a generation of pastors and pastors-to-be who would return to you and find in you all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge as they lead their people for that one glorious aim in Christ's name. Amen.